Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Map Round Show. This is the Built in New York series. With me on the line is a great founder doing something really hard, which is why it's so valuable. <laughs> but his name is John Meezy. He is the co-founder of Vera Technologies. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Privilege is all mine. Um, so I always ask uh, on any of these series, uh, it's really just for our audience around the world to get to know like how this whole story began. Uh, so why don't uh, you start with that? Like, what's um, what's the what's your background? Because I know it's quite an interesting uh, background that you come from, and maybe use that to springboard into the beginning of the origin story of uh, of Vero. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'd say my entrepreneurial itch is something that. I unintentionally found in college, um, having started an educational technology business uh, during my time at University of Michigan, um, ultimately took the conservative path into corporate finance after school, um, mostly because that's what my dad wanted me to do, I guess, but um, quickly learned that working as a uh, you know role player in a large organization where even if it was a very cool job, um, wasn't going to do it for me. So from there, I went to a smaller um, asset management company and still recognized that even in an organization of 250 people, I really wanted to see the daily output of my work translate into results. And so um, after some soul searching and a whole separate process that I'll, I'll spare you, um, I ran through, I ultimately joined a, uh, Danish software development company where I was helping them incubate and launch new products, um, that ultimately we spun off as standalone FinTech companies. Um, so I launched two businesses with that group and was able to really learn what company building and taking ideas from zero to one look like. Um, but ultimately got to a point where I needed to do it for myself. I needed to have skin in the game and know that what I was building was really my baby. Um, and so having uh, got exposure to a very, very unique, but large niche within the supply chain financing space, um, specifically inventory financing for dealers of manufactured goods, um, I partnered up with my co-founder, Isaac, and we started building Vero about two and a half years ago. So, uh, John, that's a very interesting uh, background. So, um, with Vera, there's actually two elements to this, isn't there? There's Vera Technologies, which we'll get into. Maybe we'll start there. But then you've also got um, something called Lever Auto, which is, according to my notes here, um, auto lenders spend over $200 billion a year in inventory finance. So, this is the kind of space that you that you play in. So, so maybe let's start with the problem. So, what let's start with Vera Technologies and then we can get into Lever Auto. So with with regards to Vera, like what's the problem from your perspective that you're solving? Yeah. I mean, there's really the ultimate issue is it's not a very sexy space. Um, and as such, there's been a lack of innovations, both in terms of new operating systems for lenders who do inventory financing to use uh, to support their day-to-day -day operations. But also there's a concentration of players um, because of the lack of systems, the lack of uh, general human capital expertise, not many people play in the space. And so without much competition, ultimately that means there's not competitive pricing, 
customer service leaves a lot to be desired. And you're still ha- running, you still have major players running their businesses on archaic technologies. So we set out to build an operating system for inventory financing providers that would not only allow current players to optimize the way they do business, but would also open up the gates for new players to enter the market. Mm-hmm. So how big is this problem? Like what's the market opportunity? This is for all of our investors who are like, you're like, how big is this thing? Or how, could it, how big could it get? Um, what's the number, would you say? Yeah. I mean, when you're looking at dealers of manufactured goods broadly, that's not just auto, but RVs, power sports, agricultural equipment, zero turn lawnmowers. There's about 15 other verticals where you have manufactured goods that are distributed through dealer networks. Um, And you're looking at anywhere from 700 to a trillion dollars based on, I should say 700 billion to a trillion dollars in terms of what those dealers are spending on wholesale purchases every year. So it's a really massive market. And obviously there's a variety of different verticals within it. We chose auto to launch in first for a variety of reasons, um, but have since moved into RV, agricultural equipment, power sports is going to be next. So so there's two elements to this conversation. One is the inventory financing software piece, which basically fixes a lot of the systemic issues that incumbents um, have created, let's just say, <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah. and then there's then there's the lending arm, right? So you want you're a, a a car dealership, or you are you need to finance some kind of movable asset. That's where Lever Auto comes into this uh, conversation, right? You got it. So really, what prompted us to create Lever Auto is the fact that, and I have scars from this from my my prior roles, but building institutional grade operating systems, building a a financial operating system in a vacuum without having a development partner who is testing and putting dollars through your systems on a daily basis ends up creating a lot of waste because you build something that works great in a vacuum, but when you go to operationalize it, something breaks. Um, or you try to do product development through a sales cycle, which obviously is not iterative enough to really get dialed in. So we decided to launch Lever really as the first client of Vero. So Lever has been lending for the last uh, year and a half. We've funded more than $50 million in wholesale purchases on behalf of our dealers. And the product insights, the feedback we receive from our dealer clients, the reporting we have to maintain as a lender have all been critical in really driving our product roadmap and allowing us to iterate on that operating system very efficiently. Um, And it's ultimately allowed us to get a operating system, which is um, now at a stage where we can actually license it to other lenders. Right. So let's stick with Vero for a moment. So, um, when we talk about poor systems and risk management process, processes rather and customer services to dealerships and things like this, like <clears throat> how have you guys changed all of that? Because it seems to me like when you're trying to, I mean, I tried to buy a car um, recently. And in fact, in pretty much my entire life, every time I've tried to buy a car, it sucks. <laughs> like even sell a car, like the amount of paperwork it takes to sell something it's next level. Like, and I went to uh, this uh, dealership here in uh, Denver here with my wife. She wants to get this Telluride. 
Yeah. Um, so it's a nice car, right? Um, and walked into the dealership and she's, my wife points out to me, she goes, see all those like, you know, it's like A4 pieces of paper hanging on the walls. She says, you see all those, uh, those papers on the wall. Those are all new car sales. And I was like, shit, well, you could take all of those pieces of paper and times by 10. Uh, and there's still a lot of process stuff that seemingly hasn't changed. I mean, like, you know, whether you're buying in, in an emerging market like South Africa or in a developed market like the US seems to me being a consumer of this space, uh, as many other people would also recognize or be familiar with, it's like, it sucks, right? It's not fun. So how are you, how are you improving all of this? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously from the retail perspective, that's a whole rat's nest that we have ambitions to tackle, but not quite there yet. So we're really, what we focus on is providing systems and tools for our dealers who are ultimately the borrower here to finance or acquire their inventory more seamlessly, manage their cash flows while the inventory is sitting on the lot. And then when they sell the vehicle or the RV or the power sports unit to the retail customer, be able to manage their financial operations. Because when you think about these dealers who are selling hundreds, if not thousands of units every year, it's a cash in cash out business. Most people don't understand that when they drive by that, that dealership lot down the block, those dealers don't typically have cash in their inventory. That's financed by a third party. And in the case of Lever Auto, Lever Auto is that third-party financing partner for all the inventory that's sitting on a dealer's lot. So in terms of the documentation requirements, being able to create workflows that enable suppliers to submit funding requests, dealers to manage their population of inventory while it's on their lot, and then ultimately to facilitate that retail sale transaction, there's a lot of moving pieces. And our goal is really to help dealers manage a smarter financial operation um, with a variety of different tools and analytics, but also make sure from a risk management perspective, obviously as a lender who is, you know, their, their loan is secured by that asset while it sits on the dealer's lot. So when, you're, when your collateral has four wheels or, or can float, um, it can disappear pretty quickly. And ultimately, we've come up with a variety of different tools and tactics to help our lenders um, monitor their collateral more effectively. Mm. So di- so would it be fair to say that it's pretty much the same issues? You have retail and then commercial fleets. It's almost the same thing, only you're playing on this side so they can, they can provide a better service to the end customer at the end of the day. Exactly. One mantra we have is we want to keep our dealers out of the back office doing paperwork and on the floor where they can service their customers and sell more cars. Got it. Cool. Um, And uh, just a question on, you mentioned uh, workflows. Is that kind of like what you've done here? Is this about building a workflow automation tool for dealerships? Um, In a way, yes. It's just a small part of what we've built. So as it relates to any inventory financing lifecycle, you ultimately have suppliers who need to get paid for the inventory that they're providing to the dealer. The dealer needs quick access to capital to fund those purchases, but they also need to manage their portfolio of inventory because obviously the longer it sits on the lot, the more interest it accrues, which cuts into their margins on every asset that gets sold. And then from a lender's perspective, 
you need to be corresponding with both of those parties, or really all three of those parties need to be corresponding collectively to make sure that wheel keeps spinning as they're buying and selling cars or boats every day and every week, um, and it's coming and going. It's that operational intensity that is effectively why so many banks sit on the sidelines from playing in the space. It's not like a mortgage where you originate a loan and it's going to sit at the same place for 20 or 30 years as it amortizes off their books. We're talking about a dealer buying and selling a car, which you know, typical turn time is roughly 60 days. So that's a lot of origination volume, but a lot of funding and payoffs and short duration paper. So you have a lot of dynamics that require workflow systems and, and generally document management systems, portfolio management systems that allow you to dial in on the, the vast amount of transaction activity that's being affected on the platform um, on any given day. Uh, so this is about automated decisioning then, isn't it? It's about reducing time to value essentially for, for these stakeholders. Absolutely. Everything from processing applications efficiently during the underwriting process and when you initiate that relationship with the dealer to handling individual funding requests that are coming from dozens of different parties. Um, and then being able to make it easy when a dealer does sell a car to report it sold. And, you know, they're typically waiting on financing from the retail finance company who's supporting the consumer's purchase. So there's a lot of moving parts and making it very easy and intuitive to manage that um, is really core of, of what we've developed for all three of the stakeholders in any transaction. Perfect. Um, so how do you guys make money then? I suppose on the lever auto side, it, is it a percentage based on the $55 million that you've issued through that platform? And then on the, on the Vero technology side, is that pure SaaS? Um, so it's a little bit of a unique approach from Lever um, that we've actually tried to marry uh, or bring over to Vero. Um, so many of the legacy players in the space typically charge interest on the capital that they've used to fund inventory purchases, but they also used unit-based transaction fees. So for every car that gets financed, it's $80. On day 30, it's another $50 fee if the loan is still outstanding. On day 60, it's another $50 fee. Dealers get hit with a $20 administrative expense to process a title on every car. So the, all of these ancillary fees ultimately build up and create a uh, lack of transparency. Generally, it can almost double the dealer's cost of funds relative to their nominal interest rate. So what we rolled out is a subscription-based program where a dealer is going to pay one flat monthly subscription fee plus interest on the amount of used financing. Um, and what that allows us to do is really align our interests with the dealer. We want our dealers to be turning cars over as quickly as possible. They have no incremental expense to floor that next car with our program. So we kind of have a self-selection around those best performing dealers who are turning cars over fast. And they have predictability around what their monthly expense burden is going to be for their floor plan. Um, so that's a pretty unique structure. And frankly, it was it's pretty it was a tall hill to climb when we got into the market because a lot of dealers were like a subscription for a floor plan. What are you talking about, man? Um, but we've obviously dialed in how we present that, how we explain it, um, you know, the materials to help educate dealers climb that hill with us. And we've also, you know, as we've partnered with banks, um, we obviously for banks that are just taking the technology and running with it, 
Um, there's a traditional SaaS fee. Um, but we also have banks who we're really helping guide and effectively support from a servicing operation perspective. And so those banks, we've actually got using our subscription program as well, which they see the merits of, you know, they got into the business because they heard about the complaints of the legacy players. Um, and so we're able to really make it a win-win-win for us, our bank partners, and for their dealer clients in the sense that the banks keep the interest income, which is a core revenue stream that they understand, and we're able to capture that subscription revenue that's paid by the dealers. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can't literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. So these would be banks, credit unions, or specialty financing organizations, right? So those are those are strategic partners, uh, I would imagine, for you guys. Um, curious to double-click on what you just mentioned there. If they're not familiar with buying what you're selling in the way that you're you know, helping them to buy, in other words, they're, they're not familiar with, oh, I don't, what, I must pay a subscription. Um, how have you been able to overcome that change in the way that you're uh, your partners and by extension, your dealers, you know, typically buy something like this. Yeah. I mean, this is where even till today, um, and we will continue doing this going forward. We have a constant emphasis on customer discovery, sitting with prospects and clients, listening to what they're confused by, what problems they have, what's, you know, a challenge for them. And we either, you know, come up with ways to better articulate the value of our program, whether that's with marketing materials, explainer videos, generally the, the kind of sales um, playbook that we can use to, to educate our team and there and educate dealers or educate our partners who will then educate their dealers. You know, it's, it's really, there's no substitute for investing in the relationships, both with your partners with your employees and with your dealers or with your with your clients and learning from those conversations and figuring out ways to better convey whatever that value proposition is that you're bringing to market. So one of the things, John, you mentioned to me uh, was that you've invested obviously very heavily in product development. So obviously like most, <laughs> most startups. Uh, but what's interesting about you is that you've actually done a lot of this development offshore. Um, and I'm very curious to have a, spend a bit of time here because when do you outs your source your developments offshore or not? You know what I mean? Like there's things around I, who owns the IP and uh, and then you know blah 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 it can be a minefield if you don't know what you're getting into. What have you learned about um, the or how to offshore your development 
successfully. Yeah. Um, ultimately, this was a decision of our CTO. And we, um, you know, we, Isaac and myself, the two original co-founders, really, uh, Isaac's a product guy, but non-technical. And so we invested heavily in finding that right technical partner who was focused on building an MVP for less than $50,000, um, who had a clear path around what the timeline and requirements were going to be to build version one of our platform, um, and who was committed to doing it efficiently without much overhead and, and without being inclined to roll up his sleeves individually. Um, with that being said, um, he had worked with offshore teams in the past. He had a playbook around how to manage those engagements effectively. And ultimately what I've learned is the more you invest into the partner, the better the results that you're going to yield. So our CTO at least twice a year goes over and sits with our development team in Hyderabad. Um, he has educated and implemented a DevOps operating model at the organization, which they viewed as a means of leveling up their broader operations outside of just the engagement with Vero. Um, and, you know, it's a great cadence where Rama is able to sit with our team at the beginning of our days and at the end of, or I should say at the beginning of his day and the end of his day and provide that feedback and insight so that we relative, we have a relatively continuous development cycle. Um, as that team has grown from two, three, four engineers to now more than 20, it's obviously required a variety of different organizational evolutions where we have sourced or identified you know, folks within that team who have elevated their performance to be take on leadership or team management roles. Um, you know, we have biweekly sprints, weekly touch bases um, between pro, uh, Isaac's product organization and dev team in order for them to really get dialed in on the end user perspective. Um, but ultimately, it's Rama is um, masterful at managing that. And without him, we never would have been able to get comfortable with investing so helpfully in our offshore operations. Right. Is it something that you see yourselves continuing strategically on or do you feel like it's something that you will bring in-house? There will always be a component of our business that is offshore. Um, the economic model, it, it's irrefutable. Um, with that being said, we now are at a point where we need to get more of a team onshore to support the day-to-day -day problems that need to be addressed, you know, the inevitable bugs, um, and frankly, just ramp up our capacity as we continue to move even faster um, and continue to expand our, our build-out and development efforts. Cool. Uh, so you guys uh, closed your most recent funding round. You raised uh, $4 million uh, in March. Um, how was that process for you? Was that was it something that you uh, that you anticipated being as hard as it, as it was? Or was it easier than you expected? Walk us through some initial experiences there. It was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone said it was going to be brutal. And I was like, yeah, okay, we'll be prepared for it. But it was tough. Um, especially for a business that has balance sheet risk. You know, the reality and, and what we found is there's really two populations of investors, those that are comfortable with balance sheet risk and those who are not. Um, and then even within that population of those who are comfortable, there's an even smaller population who are comfortable doing early 
early stage investments. Um, and you know what it came down to was um, educating them. It took time. You you know we started it earlier than we expected, and it still went longer than we expected. Uh, um, but the beauty of investing so heavily in our seed round is a lot of those people that said, hey, we like your business, we like you guys as founders, but we need to see more proof points, more of a track record, just not right now, have since circled back with us or we've circled back with them or we've bumped into them at a conference and now they're engaged leading up to our Series A. So, you know, I think everyone says your seed round is the hardest. I sure as hell hope so. Um, but it also did, you know, it's it forced us to really um, refine our articulation of current business model and future plans. It forced us to really refine go-to-market strategy. Um, and it allowed us to even come up with some new ideas around how we think about the business. So I still view every one of those conversations. Well, almost every one of those conversations as being generally productive. So how soon in the process do you feel like a startup should start this this sort of capital raising process? I mean, I think as soon as you have some validation um, or a clear path to validation within the next three to six months. Um, you know, it's great to strike out and start, I shouldn't say strike out, it's great to start or to set out and start having those conversations with VCs and say, hey, this is where we're at and this is where we want to be six months from now. And these are the milestones we're going to hit. Because I think as a seed or you know, raising for a seed round, nothing provides better validation than you telling someone you're going to do something, you go out and actually do it. And they're like, oh, well, you know, it's a little early, but these guys do what they say they're going to do. So I have a little extra confidence in them. So why 4 million and not six? We're practical. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we raised at a 16 million pre-money bail. Uh, we thought that was fair given where we were at. Um, you know, it was 2021. I think you you have some crazy people who can raise three to five million with a with a DAC. Um, we had an operating system and traction and some revenue. Um, and I think it frankly behooves us now as we contemplate when to go out to the market for our Series A that we didn't have some crazy astronomical valuation for our seed. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of contemplation, do you ever contemplate the day of a liquidity event in the future? I try not to let myself do that too often, but inevitably it's uh, it's a nice thing to daydream about sometimes. Mm-hmm. So curious on that. When do you start daydreaming about that stuff or at least applying your mind into like how to structure this thing for a liquidity event? Because often I've found like, you know, people, we, sometimes you can actually leave it too late. Like I know you're in this raise, you know, like, but you have to actually think, well, hang on, how many more, you know, are you going to get to like series B and then start, you know what I mean? Because, or do you wait another two years till series D? You know what I mean? Like timing, timing is important. So like how, when do you start thinking about that sort of stuff? I mean, I've started now. Uh, I've started since the seed got done. I think you know, we heard pushback around different parts of our business. Um, and as we've heard pushback or as we've heard, you know, how do you focus more on the technology and less on the balance sheet? How do you think about what a potential acquirer looks like? You know, how big do you want to take this? Um, those are 
questions that I don't necessarily have a fully baked answer to today, but I've definitely thought about. And so we think about contingency planning. If this, then what happens there? Or if we go down this path, what does it mean for the other parts of our business? Um, so I think actually you don't commit to any plans when you're a seed or series A stage, stage company, but you do have an understanding of what those different outcomes look like and what those inflection points are when you commit to one path or another. Um, so we're mindful of them, but we are still in a place where we have a ton of growth to do, a lot of building to do. Um, and ultimately, you know, I don't think we have to commit to a plan for another 24 to 36 months. And that still is well in advance of any type of exit event. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a reality where we run this business for the rest of, of our careers. Um, we love the organization we've built. We love the people that we've gotten involved. And we like the idea that we can continue to grow this thing to be, you know, cash flow positive in the nearish term, um, but ultimately a self-sustaining place that we're really proud of as an organization that um, people want to come and work for. Mm -hmm. um, so speaking of people, who's on your team? Like who's, who's the, who are the captains on the ship? Yeah, we've been very mindful of building out a mix of experienced industry operators who have done inventory financing in a variety of capacities at those legacy players who understand the pains of the existing systems that people use and the operating models that are frankly hamstrung by those systems, as well as product startup technology-oriented folks who come from backgrounds of growth stage organizations that have been scrappy, who have moved quickly, who understand, you know, the ambiguity that needs to be navigated given the life stage that we're at. So what I really love about our team is, you know, we have folks who have been around the block who have really seen how this shit gets done. And they kind of define, here's a problem. And this is the, this is the general solution or the requirements of the solution. And then our technology and product folks say, okay, how do we re-engineer a process or a tool or a system that takes advantage of the latest and greatest technologies that we have access to, to, to achieve either that same outcome or a better outcome than what was previously achievable um, in our, you know, in the experienced operators folks prior lives. It's interesting when you when you think about the way things, or maybe for context, so everything is the way that it is because someone changed it from the way that it was, and usually that person's like an entrepreneur. That's my view. And then yeah. what's interesting from your perspective, it's like, well, one, you didn't really, like you didn't spend 25 years in this space, you know what I mean? And they go, oh shit, there has to be a better way. It was actually coming in relatively clean, and meaning you didn't have... You just knew that it, there must be a better way, but you didn't know what that was. Um, that's the visionary, right? You're just trying to figure that stuff out and connect all the dots in your mind and then build something that can ultimately get there. And then what you've done is you're bringing in people who are familiar with the way that it that it was and has been for so long, um, and you're bringing them into this new culture and this new idea, right? To say, hey, bring your expertise, your subject matter expertise from the way that it was, and we want to not change the way that it is moving forward. So... Lots of preamble there, but the reason why I'm, or the question that I have rather is, how much of an advantage do you feel it actually is not knowing what you're getting into versus bringing people in 
it's like Apple hiring people from Motorola. Like, would they do that? Or would they hire, you know what I mean? Like to, to get the innovation cycle going, like it's different mindsets, isn't it? Um, so I'm curious to, to get your view on that. It's a delicate balance that needs to be maintained. Um, you know, ultimately, especially in a lending business, you need to have some gray hairs who have seen how stuff gets done and what are the messes and how to navigate those. Um, you know, I think a decade ago in that original generation of, you know, peer-to-peer lending platforms, it was probably more of the traditional focus on growth, focus on top line revenue and origination volume, and, you know, worry about portfolio performance after the fact. And for us, we've taken the model of the best way for us to grow is to couple moving relatively quickly and being growth-minded while also being relatively risk-minded. Because frankly, the insights that I gather from our team of operators are adding, you know, it's impossible to put a dollar value on the, the, the value that they're contributing to our product roadmap. Um, there are so many gaps that if you try to just dive into the deep end and build something that you think is, you know, you know it, it's the whole Henry Ford adage of if you'd ask them, what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Like, yeah, sure. But if you had showed them a chassis and allowed them to drive without a horse, like they probably would have had some product insights around exactly what needed to be accommodated in terms of user requirements. And so this gets back to our focus on customer discovery. I think, you know, we see the Leverado team as, again, customer number one of Vero. And so we need to make sure that we meet their needs because ultimately their needs are very similar to the needs of our bank partners that we're implementing with. And so I think it, it, I put a heavy emphasis on user-driven development rather than moonshot innovation. And yeah, so let's talk, let's unpack that because I think this is actually something we wanted to talk about, wasn't it? It was around the fact that you guys have over-invested, quote-unquote, in customer discovery, and then there was the faster horse story. Um, so why is this so important to you? Like the customer, dis- I mean, that's kind of self-implied for those of us who haven't <laughs> been in the space for more than about one month. Uh, but um, but then basically the way I want to go with this is like there's two types of innovation, isn't there? Like forget the term used, but like visionary innovation. It's like Steve Jobs created the iPhone. If you went to cons- any consumer in the world and said, hey, do you want, what do you want next? Like you never would have got the iPhone. So that's the visionary innovation space, and then you've got this customer innovation space. Surely it's, and maybe this is about getting that balancing act right, like you mentioned, you know, like getting the right people from the way that it was the incumbent space, because there's lots of knowledge there. Um, and then I suppose getting that customer innovation also mapped correctly to the vision that you're trying to create, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it comes down to a few realities that whoever the entrepreneurs has to accept, you know, to do the visionary led innovation, inevitably you're going to probably, it's going to be a bigger bet on a crazier outcome. That's slightly higher risk from an execution standpoint. Um, In our view, customer led innovation was a bit of a hedge because we ultimately are tackling a existing market with an existing product but we believe the way we can deliver that product can be wholly differentiated based on the the technology that we're developing. And so the fact that we moved 
so quickly to get a product into the market. You know, when we launched, we were using a JOT form to handle funding requests. Um, and so, you know, but those initial loans that we funded informed even, you know, at that point in time, we didn't even have a floor plan expert on the team, but funding those initial loans allowed us to navigate how to build the right piping to support going from five loans a week to a hundred loans a week to a thousand loans a week. Um, and so that was a critical kind of crawl before you walk process. Um, so, you know, we wanted to work towards a path where we could get to cash flow positive in a much tighter timeline than may have been the case with any fintech startup five or 10 years ago. We wanted to get to a case where we could really prioritize feature development based on customer feedback rather than what our product team thought was going to be the coolest, shiniest tool. Um, and again, this is the nature of us operating in an existing market and trying to displace the existing competitors rather than necessarily go out and create a new market in a green field. Um, so I think there's different approaches based on the model you're trying to enter, based on the competitive environment, based on what your go-to-market path looks like. Um, but also we, you know, this kind of goes back to Lever, or I'm sorry, back to Vera. We knew that we needed to have a successful track record of a client using our systems before a bank was ever going to be ready to jump on board with us. And so Lever in a way was also a, you know, it was, it was grease on the wheel for us to get those initial bank contracts. Mm. So um, what's your vision here, John? Like where, where, what's the ultimate contribution that you hope to make to the world through this startup? I mean, I want to make a meaningful impact in the industry that we operate in, and that's dealers and manufactured goods, community, regional banks, and credit unions, um, and ultimately the other tangential stakeholders who are involved in our market. Um, I think, you know, the, the dealer world is generally underserved and maybe has a slightly bad stigma associated with it, um, but ultimately our platform is going to be a means that that we want to do more than just floor planning. We, we really want to think about how we can better meet the broader financial needs of our dealers beyond just providing inventory financing. Um, so whether that's, you know, thinking about business banking services, um, debit and credit card, loans for real estate transactions, the beauty of, of the inventory financing is we have a very high level of engagement with our dealers where they're buying and selling cars or boats or whatever it might be on a daily basis. And they're consistently engaging with our platform for services. So our bank partners love it because they then can use that high level of engagement to identify other financial needs that they can support of those businesses. Um, and we can then provide a platform where you know, perhaps a dealer is, is not big enough to qualify for a bank floor plan line today, but they can grow with us. We can support their broader financial needs and they can ultimately graduate to our bank partners in their local markets over time. So really it's, it's providing this holistic financial services platform for a, a niche that is not a small segment in this, in, in our universe or our economy, you know, an auto alone, there are more than 65,000 dealers in the United States. Um, and that doesn't even contemplate the ag dealers, the marine dealers, the RV dealers out there as well. 
Very, very interesting. So I'm going to have a bit of fun with you now, John. Uh, but uh, if I could give you the keys to the Matt Brown Show time machine and ask you to go back to day one, um, and uh, if you think about all the things you've learned, all the things that you've uh, achieved, all the things you failed at, um, what would like one piece of advice be you know, that you would give yourself about building this business? I think um, the one thing that I've learned the hard way that I wish I would have known is it's going to be a roller coaster ride. So just buckle up. But the downswings are never going to last as long as you think they are. And inevitably, in a relatively short matter of time, generally, knock on wood, this has been the case for us so far, um, something shifts and you start that upswing again and it gets really damn exciting. Um, so that's probably my, my biggest learning or takeaway that I've, I've tried to uh, remind myself of today. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, it's a bit like, it's not exactly like a hockey stick, is it? It's kind of more like a stock market graph. And then you must just kind of try and like not slit your wrists when things get bad. (laughs) As long as those downswings aren't as low as they were previously, you're still on your way up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, So John, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Why do you do what you do? Like you could go, obviously you're a smart guy. You could solve any problems really. Um, Why do you, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Honestly, I love working with my team. Um, We're at 17 today, um, and we all have fun working together, even during the shitty weeks. Um, And I think that was kind of an objective that I set for myself, for us, when we got started, is to build an organization that we're proud of. Um, And, you know, the fact it's... it's, uh, I'm responsible for all the bad things that happen. We're responsible for all the good things that happen is kind of the mentality around here. Um, So we really try to support our people, create a place where they're never going to want to leave, create plans for them individually to expand and pursue whatever ambitions they have. Um, And it makes navigating the tough stuff a lot easier knowing that we have each other's backs. Awesome stuff, man. Well, look, John, it's been a privilege having you on the show. Um, very excited to see where you guys are going. As uh, I've been, as, as I was telling you when I first met, like I've also been in a similar lending type platform and services with like underwriting services around it. It's a, it's a very interesting space. Um, and I think what you guys have achieved in such a short period of time is, is really remarkable. So super excited to see where you guys are going to go. Thanks, man. Thanks, everyone. Cheers for now. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.